If you're paying attention to the way your relationships work in life, uh, you'll notice that life is a three-way struggle. We struggle with other people, we struggle with ourselves, and we struggle with God. We struggle with other people because people are messy. Yesterday was my birthday, I turned 41. Okay. Yes. And uh, I've been the whole weekend talking to people, friends, and family members, uh, people in my life who, are, who I love and who love me. And one of the things that is the common denominator in almost every single relationship that I have with people that is close is that there was always conflict. Sometimes it's a conflict between me and them. We butted heads. Other times it's just that our relationship had to navigate a conflict together. And on the other side of that conflict did come connection and real relationship, but it got me thinking about just the nature of the struggle with other people. It's always going to be a struggle with other people because people are messy and it comes alongside with a whole lot of conflict. Sometimes it's not conflict, other times it's just good old-fashioned competition. Now, I don't compete with most people in most things other than parenting. Deep down inside, when I'm like, oh, your kids listen to you. Oh, okay, that's an interesting thing. And they just, how many languages do they speak? Three? That's good. That's really... That's good. I praise God for them and their diligence. Uh, the, one of the ways that I feel, honestly, sometimes like I'm not doing a great job in life is when I see my kids and I start to compare them to other kids. Um, this message is not on that, but I do know this. The quickest way to kill anything special in your life is to compare it to somebody else. But there's a piece of me that does compete, and that makes it a struggle to, to rejoice with other people who are rejoicing. In my life, I know so many people, actually, who are really good at mourning with me when life is difficult, but they're not always so able to rejoice with me when, I'm, uh, when, when life is up and things are going well. You might see that in your own relationships as well. So relationships are hard. People are hard because there's conflict, there's competition. You know, there's also just misunderstandings. You said this, they heard that, right? Isn't that one of the most frustrating things? Yes. One of the biggest challenges about a, a diverse church um, not just uh, ethnically, but also socially and culturally, is that we come to the table with so many different assumptions of what different things mean or should mean. And that means that our church, our DNA groups, are ripe for disagreement and misunderstanding. And then other times, it's uh, relationships with other people. We struggle with other people because of this disappointments. They aren't who we wish that they, who we wish that they are who we need them to be, people who you wanted to hold you down in life and they just don't hold you down. So we don't just struggle with other people because people are messy. We also, if we were to keep it all the way live, we struggle with ourselves. As a matter of fact, you are your greatest struggle. I was listening to a pastor preach a sermon and he was talking about this very thing. He said, I have participated in every bad decision that I have ever made. <laughs> all the bad relationship decisions, all the bad financial decisions, you sold everything and bought mad crypto, the bad fashion decisions, you are the one that talked yourself out of exercise and into dessert. You are the mastermind behind all of your greatest regrets. Our greatest challenge isn't the person across the hall, it's the one in the mirror. MJ said it best. You and I are difficult to lead. So you and I struggle with ourselves. We want to be one thing and we're just not. We don't live up to the ideals that we have for ourselves. We don't just struggle with other people and ourselves, but we also struggle with God. 
God would be a whole lot easier if he just did what we wanted him to do, wouldn't he? One pastor said that the biggest reasons we struggle with God is because we doubt God's wisdom and we want to be in control. We doubt God's wisdom, that God's ways are truly higher than our ways and God's thoughts being higher than our thoughts. We just don't see how God couldn't be doing anything good or redemptive in any of the situations that we are in. And as a result, many times we make the mistake of thinking that since I can't see any redemptive value to, this, to what is going on, there must not be any. And also... We want to be in control. Most of why people play Powerball, and I'm not judging you, because if you hit, please put that in that offering basket. Is <laughs> because if you hit the Powerball when it was like 1.9 billion, the thing you probably daydreamed about was that you were in control. You would call your boss tomorrow and be like, you, not coming back in. Your schedule, your time, you'd be in control of it. Very few things in life would you be able to, would you have to rely on anyone else? And that is some of the value of, of that much money and that much wealth. But today I want to look at a scripture that is about the problems that we have in our own bodies. And it's going to talk a lot more about the struggle we have with ourselves. So we've been in this series called Embodied, connecting our faith and our bodies. And one of the scriptures that has been the banner scripture for our time together is that God has made you fearfully and wonderfully. When creation first, when God created people, he looked at us and says, you are very good indeed. God is pleased with his creation. Any artist who's really like proud of their work, they take a step back and they look at it. For you, it might just be that email that you wrote that was like the perfect clapback. It was corporate enough. It won't get you in trouble with HR. And you read that email like nine times like, yo, that was amazing. You was reading it on your break. (laughs) Whenever we have a good creation, we want to look at it and just say, man, that was a beautiful thing that I have done. Scripture says that when God made us, he looked at us, he took a step back and said, man, creation, humans, they're just very good indeed. But God has made us very good, but he didn't make you perfect. There are problems with us, all of us. What do you do with the problems about you? What should you do with the things about you that may or may not change? One of the biggest temptations for Jordan is when I think about the things that are wrong with me is it pushes me down into shame. And shame says, you're just messed up. You're just, you are like, you are the worst, man. What is wrong with you? Why would you do that again? Shame tells us we are unworthy of love and connection. And it makes us hide. It makes us run away from God and from other people. It makes us run away from ourselves. And our hope in this Embodied series is to bring us back to ourselves and to bring us back into God and that we will be able to bring the problems with us to God, not away from God. So there's a scripture in 2 Corinthians 12. It says this. It's written by a man named Paul. He says, A thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to torment me so that I would not exalt myself. Concerning this, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it would leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. Therefore, I will most gladly boast all the more about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may reside in me. So I take pleasure in weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and in difficulties for the sake of Christ. 
For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul is talking about something really profound here. Paul wrote so much of the New Testament, and a lot of Paul's writings are about theology. The book of Romans is a beautiful book of scripture where Paul talks about uh, and breaks down scripture and from the Old Testament, from Genesis through, uh, through Malachi. And Paul is a brilliant theologian. But in 2 Corinthians, Paul is not breaking down a theological paradigm about what happened with the angels or the high priest Melchizedek. Paul is breaking down a reality of his own life. Here we're getting personal. Something happened in Paul's life that was debilitating, painful, embarrassing potentially, and potentially even permanent in his life. Some scholars think that what was going on with Paul is that he was dealing with a condition with his eyes that deformed him. There's some evidence in the New Testament that Paul actually had a difficulty writing his own letters, not because he wasn't learned. Paul was a genius. He was, a, he was the man with the pen and the scroll. But some scholars say that towards the end of his life, his, this condition that he's talking about here in 2 Corinthians was so bad that he couldn't even write for himself. So this man who has written what we have come to rely on, uh, God's inspired word, now he can't even see is what many uh, scholars say. But whatever it was in his life, he refers to it as a thorn. When I was about 13, uh, in order to support my sneaker habit, I, I went along with one of my friends to, uh, to work. And my friend was Jamaican. He had like nine jobs. And one of his jobs was to, um, to do landscaping. So we decided that we were going to do some landscaping and make about 100 bucks. And I was like, I'm 13 years old. This is the easiest money of my life. We woke up at about 5 o'clock in the morning. And my friend's father told us, all you have to do today is clean out the rose beds, and then you can go home. So that sounds pretty easy, clean out the rose beds. These rose beds haven't been touched since Lincoln was assassinated. <laughs> there was like four roses and like 7,000 thorns. And no matter where you turned, it was like I just kept on getting stuck with the thorns. And I had these super thick gloves, but it didn't matter. They were just piercing my hands. My hands were bleeding. My legs were bleeding. And every now and then, a thorn would get stuck in your hand or your leg. And when a thorn got stuck in your leg or your hand, it didn't matter what direction you turned, you felt it in every single movement of your body. When Paul says that there was a thorn given to him, what Paul is saying that there was something so significant in his life that was something that he couldn't just forget about or go out with his friends and ignore it. It was something that he could not ignore because it affected him in no matter what direction he turned in. It was something that was comprehensive over his life. So this is something that is debilitating, it's comprehensive, it's painful, and Paul gives us some instructions on how you and I could live life if and when these things come to us. Now, we're in the series talking about God and our bodies, but this extends not just to physical illnesses or ailments or disabilities that we have in our own bodies, but so many other things that make us who we are. And for us to live in this skin faithfully following God, we're going to have to learn how we deal with the, problem, the problems with us. Now, you might not have Paul's specific illness, but all of us deal with one of these things, if not all four of these things in our life. So here are some of the problems with us. Sin, weaknesses wounds, and damages. Sin, weaknesses, wounds, and damages. And we'll go through all four of these. All four of these impact us in different ways. So the problem with us, the main problem with all of us, is that sin is something that will always be a part of you and the way that you manage the world. There is no 
maturity that you can ever grow to or aspire to in which you will not have to daily fight against temptation and sin in your life. Not externally, not other people, but you yourself uh, will always have to deal with this. Here's how Paul describes his struggles with sin. And this is a man who had a vision of the, of the, vision of, uh, of the risen Jesus. He says this, yo, I don't understand what I'm doing because I do not practice what I want to do. I do what I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, I agree with the law that it is good. So now I am no longer the one doing it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my, my flesh. For the desire to do good is with me, but there's no ability to do it. For I do not do the good that I want to do, but I practice the evil that I do not want to do. Paul is talking about all of our struggles with sin, that all of us have a desire to do better and we don't live better. All of us have an aspiration for our life, and oftentimes we find ourselves with that same claim that Paul is making. I do not do the good that I want to do, but I practice the evil that I do not want to do. Sin is something that's going to be persistent in all of our lives. But this is not an excuse to do whatever. Like, yo, you heard Pastor. He said sin is always going to be there, so we might as well, right? <laughs> Here's what the scripture tells us about this as well. 1 Peter 2.11, he says, Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and exiles to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against the soul. What Peter would say about sin, the sin that is present with us, is sin that we have to fight against. Sin basically means missing the mark of God's righteousness, what God calls us to do. And what Peter says is that this is not benign, it is not harmless, it is waging war against your soul. One of the best examples I, I, I can think about is happening right now in Ukraine. The Russian invasion of Ukraine shows a clear example of what war seeks to accomplish. Don't be fooled by just the bombing and all of the exercises of military strength. The goal is not destruction, although it does accomplish destruction. The goal of an invasion is allegiance. When Putin moved into Ukraine, what was he trying to do? He's trying to flip territories that used to be loyal to Ukraine to be loyal to Russia. What scripture tells us about what sin does in our life is that it tries to take away not just, it's not just going to destroy you or be harmful to you, it's trying to take away your allegiances. So it's not just that drinking too much is sinful because it's going to destroy your liver. What it will end up doing if you drink too much is it will take away your allegiance. You used to be dependent on God, on your friends, on family for comfort and, uh, and strength and guidance. But eventually your allegiance will turn from, from God to the bottle. And that is the danger of drinking too much as one small example. So... When we see sin in our lives, again, the first thing that I see myself wanting to do and being tempted to do is to respond with shame and to beat myself up. And this is particularly true for people who are dealing with habitual sin in your life, something that you're trying to get through, and for whatever reason, you have not found wholeness uh, from that. And what we do most of the time when we uh, find sin in our life is we, we're ashamed, we cover it, we run away. We run away from God. We run away from the church. We run away from accountability. We, we run away from the sources that could actually heal us. First John 1 and 9, G, uh, the author tells us, um, God is faithful. God is faithful. You're not faithful, but God is faithful. He is just. 
If we confess our sins, God is faithful. He will forgive us of our sins. And not just that, y'all. He will cleanse us of all of our unrighteousness. When Paul talks about finding strength in our weaknesses, that includes us finding strength in the power and the fight against sin so that we would run away from self-reliance and run into the hands and the arms of the one who really does have the power to, to heal us, to strengthen us, to, to wipe us clean. What Paul is talking about here in 2 Corinthians, that we would find strength in our weaknesses. The scripture in verse 9 where Jesus tells him, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. How does that impact you and the sins in your life, the areas in your life? The greatest sin in your life is not a specific thing. It's, it's self-reliance. That is a sin. That the, it's pride and self-reliance that makes you rely on yourself on every, above everything else. And what is healing and what is God's invitation to you is to run away from self-dependence and independence and run to, to God, to a God-dependence. And that would actually bring you real strength. Um, in my house, um, my responsibility is the kitchen. I do the kitchen every night, dishes and all that good stuff. My wife, she does the laundry uh, in our division of duties at home. And there's a lot of times, like, I'll go into the laundry room and I'll see a shirt that I had hung up, like, in the hamper. And I'm like, I know I hung that shirt up, and that shirt has at least two more wears out of it. And she's like, no, bro, I smelled the pits, and <laughs> it needs to be washed. It needed to be washed before you wore it last time. Over the years, I've realized that my smelling is not as strong as my wife's. And if I don't want to embarrass myself, I need to be less reliant on me and my own senses and more reliant on her. To trust that I'll bring her the shirt and say, yay or nay, can I wear this shirt today? And then she'll give me permission whether or not to wear it. I say this in jest a little bit, but the seriousness of this is this. So many of us have determined that we are going to live life's life by ourselves. We're going to set the course for our life. We're going to depend on ourselves. We're not constantly checking in with the Lord, our Savior, Jesus, about the status of our days, our moments, to turn over things, our life to him, to ask him for strength and for guidance. Jesus is an amazing, amazing Savior. He's a better Savior than you are a sinner. And he invites us to come to him because Jesus wants to lead you. Jesus wants to lead you in your life. And we will find real strength when we run away from our self-dependence into a real God dependence. So that's number one. We all, one of the problems with us in our sinful flesh is sin. That's the biggest one. But there's some other really big ones that impact all of us. And I, my fear is that we are way too reductionistic when it comes to the problems with us. So it's not just sin that is a problem with you, but we also have weaknesses. So not everything wrong with you is a sin. Sin is a violation of God's law, not a tradition or preferences, but an actual violation of God's law. So 1 Thessalonians 5 and 14, it says this, and we urge you, brothers and sisters, to warn those who are idle, encourage the disheartened, help the weak, and be patient with everyone. What Paul says here in 1 Thessalonians is that people who are dealing with weaknesses don't need judgment, they need help. They don't need a, a lecture, they need to be helped. And one of the things that's wrong with mo uh, many of us, uh, some of the problems with us is that we just have weaknesses. Weaknesses are our natural pronenesses, the things that we naturally do. So we can aspire to live a certain way, but we don't do it because we are just weak. One example that I, I, I like to think about is in the, the area of relationships, right? So um, the way that you will handle conflict 
in your relationships is based on how your family of origin dealt with them. So if you grew up in a household where one person was allowed to be angry, they were screaming all over the place, this is the way that you were going to handle conflict. If you grew up in a household where everybody was silent and they pretended everything was okay until it boiled over, that's likely the way that you're going to handle it. When you come into the new family of Jesus, if you want a healthy relationship, you're going to need to learn how to put off the old ways that you have been formed and to put on new ways on how to deal with life in a healthy, biblical, godly way. But the problem is, if it's never been modeled for you, if vulnerability and asking for forgiveness has never been modeled for you, it is going to be a weakness for you in your relationships. And instead of judging people who have weaknesses, we need to offer them help. Instead of judging ourselves for the weaknesses that we have, we need to go to God and to go to other people for help. And this is why Paul says, when I am weak, then I am strong, because the, the recognition that you are weak and the recognition that you are in need is the avenue by which you and I search after real help. And that is why we can truly find strength. Now, a really unhealthy way to deal with weaknesses is to be intolerant of them. Most of the time, the emotion associated with weakness is frustration and anger. And we're annoyed at people, we're annoyed at ourselves for being weak, but the correct response is, is empathy. Now, there's a lot of weaknesses that all of us have uh, in our life. A lot of times, I'll be talking to people, and as a pastor, you know, people apologize to me for not knowing things. They're like, yeah, you know, pastor, I'm sorry, you know, I just started coming to church, and I'm sorry, I, I'm sorry I, didn't, I didn't know this. I'm like, well... You're new. You shouldn't know how to like, recite all of the books of the Bible frontwards and backwards. Like This is a weakness. You are new to the faith. You are new to exploring the world of the Bible. You are new to passionately following Jesus. You are going to stumble. This is a weakness. You don't know how to do this yet. This is why they have training, bikes on wheel, or training wheels on bikes, because we know intuitively that whenever there's a new thing for you to, uh, to, to go after, it is going, going to have a process involved by which you're going to be falling and stumbling along the way. Too many of us, we hide our weaknesses, we pretend they're not there, and we block ourselves from really receiving the strength that God wants us to have by not, uh, not admitting them and not asking for help. So Jesus, when he was talking to his disciples, right when he was about to be uh, arrested and crucified, he's asking his disciples to stay awake and pray with him and a very good prayer, a very good request. And here's what Jesus says to them. Stay awake and pray so that you won't enter into temptation. And here's what he tells them. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He doesn't judge them for their weaknesses. He just acknowledges what those are. One of the realities of, of life is this. Some of us will have weaknesses until the day that we die. Some of us will have weaknesses until the day that we die. And God does not judge you for your weaknesses. God wants to help you in your weaknesses. So number one, sin. Number two, weaknesses. Number three, wounds. These are painful things that have happened to us. Wounds are a temporary injury, something that has been done to us. If your parents were overly harsh to you, that could have been a wound. If you've been lied to or cheated on, that is a wound. But I don't have to explain what wounds are. You can think about the things that you've experienced in life that have hurt you. You can put on a face now and pretend like it doesn't really bother you, but you know deep down inside that this thing that has happened has, has truly wounded you. It hit below the belt. Now, wounds uh, hinder relationships from operating them the way that God wants them to. One of the things that I've noticed is that the people who are 
the most distrustful of the church are not people who have never been to church before. It's people who once upon a time came to church and they were wounded. You came to church expecting to encounter God and you encountered a charlatan. You came to church in search of community, in search of being welcomed and accepted, you were talked about. You came to church confessing what was going on in your life and those confessions got spread uh, to a group of people you never agreed for them to be spread to. You came to church expecting to serve and you got burnt out. So, so many people have been wounded uh, by the church, but they are temporary uh, injuries. And so much of scripture is that when Jesus meets people who have been wounded, Jesus doesn't judge them for the source of their wounds. The parable of the Good Samaritan is a, a really profound parable in Luke 10. I wish I had more time to, to go through it today. But basically, it's a story about a man who was on the road, and while he was on his road on his journey, he gets beat up really badly. And Jesus says that um, there are these two religious officials who walk past him and ignore him, but there's this one Good Samaritan who comes and offers him help. And Jesus tells at the end of the story to go and do likewise. Here's what the Samaritan did. It says, he went and he bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, putting the man on his own donkey and took him to the inn. What this man does with another person's wounds is he doesn't judge them and say, well, why were you on the road? You knew you shouldn't have gone there anyway. What he does is he offers him help. And this is what Jesus wants to do with our wounds. We erroneously judge people with wounds who are acting out. And we should instead see people with wounds and seek to bandage them. Here's what I've been doing for the last number of years. Instead of asking what is wrong with them or what is wrong with me, ask the question, what happened to them? Or I wonder what happened to me, to go back to the, to the source of that wound, because at the source of the wound, uh, that is a place of healing. And wounds take time to heal. Now, some of the things that happen to us, they are more than wounds, because wounds are temporary injuries. Some of the things that happen to us, they're damages. Damages are permanent injuries. Damages will not be healed in this side of eternity. Damages need a whole lot of grace and hope. And this is what Paul has in 2 Corinthians 12, something that the Lord said three times he pleaded over and over again and it would not be taken from him. One of my favorite scriptures about damages is in 2 Samuel 4 and 4. It says this, Saul's son, Jonathan, had a son whose feet were crippled. He was five years old when the report about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. His nanny picked him up and fled, but as she was hurrying to flee, he fell and became lame. His name was Mephibosheth. What happened in his life, the damage that came to him was that it was a permanent injury, but it wasn't his fault. Some of us have been really harmed, and it wasn't your fault. But even though it wasn't your fault, it impacts you and it impacts the way you do relationships and you interact with the world today. And these are things that are, are permanent. These are things about us that will uh, likely not change or ever get better. Damages result in an inability to do something. And when we encounter damages in our life, and these are certain traumas, certain mental health issues, uh, talking to my therapist one time, I asked her, I've been diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder, and I asked her, I said, do you like, foresee a day when I won't have anxiety? And she just got quiet. And I was like, oh, that's not a good sign. <laughs> it's a damage that I'm going to have to live with, likely, for the rest of my life. So what do you do with the things in your life that are not going to change, or they're not going to change yet? What are you going to do with the problems with you, the sins in your life, 
the weaknesses, the wounds, and the damages. Paul gives us some very helpful things from Scripture. He says this, we'll go back to the text. A thorn in the flesh was given to me. This thorn is a thing that you feel everywhere you go. A messenger of Satan to torment me so that I would not exalt myself. Concerning this, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it would leave me. The first thing that we need to do whenever we encounter sins, weaknesses, wounds, and damages in our life is that we need to plead to the Lord. We need to pray. One of the great uses of social media will be in the last day to show us that our prayerlessness was not for a lack of time. We have the time. And one of my great regrets in my own life is how prayerless I am about the things about me that I know God is inviting me to bring to him. So the first thing Paul does is he pleads with the Lord over and over again. Paul had experience with God intervening in his life, and I never want any of you to take for granted that this thing will never change. So in Paul's life, there's a scripture in Philippians where Paul is praying for his friend Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus is sick and he's about to die. And scripture says that Paul, that, uh, Paul is praying, he says, God, you have spared us this sorrow upon sorrow, and you have spared Epaphroditus's life. Paul knew what it felt like for God to enter to human history. And my fear is that so many of us have just, we have a resignation. We have a, we've just given up on the, on, the, on the power and the concept of prayer that we don't pray about things in our life. My hope is that some of us would experience a real life-altering power of God that invades your life, that changes things. And one day you'll look back and you'll say, I have no idea how it happened, but I know God did it. God invites you to pray. So this scripture Paul says he pleaded with the Lord three times. This doesn't mean one day he prayed for a week. It means he pleaded with the Lord three times, meaning there were seasons of his life where Paul was bombarding heaven with prayer. In Luke 18, Jesus gives a parable about prayer, and he says, scripture says that Jesus told this parable so that men and women would always pray and never give up. God is inviting you first and foremost to pray, not to complain about it, not to always search for the, uh, the quick fix on Google, but rather to pray about it. So the first thing he does is he pleads with the Lord for the Lord to take it away. And um, the Lord doesn't take it away in Paul's life. That doesn't mean he won't take the thing away in your life. But in Paul's scenario, he doesn't take it away. So verse 9, it says, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. Therefore, I will most gladly boast all the more about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may reside in me. So I take pleasure in weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and in difficulties for the sake of Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. After you've prayed for something and for God to take it away, if the Lord, if the answer to that is no, what we need to do is to grieve our losses. So you need to plead with the Lord but to not run away to a place of faithfulness just yet, uh, but to grieve your losses. Now, in this text, um, I don't know what the gap was in between when Paul got the thorn and when he was able to say that I take pleasure in difficulties and hardships and I rejoice in all these different things. I don't know what that gap was, but I know it wasn't overnight. The pathway towards finding healing and, and hope and wholeness in your life goes through grief. Next week, we're going to talk a lot about emotions, but Scripture says that blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. One of the things that I've done in my life, and I don't like to do this often because it's a miserable exercise, is I write down the things in my life that have been taken away from me, the things that are not coming back. 
and I grieve those. I allow myself to feel those things. For about 10 minutes, I will set a timer, and I will sit in the room and experience the, the sadness and the anxiety from the losses that I've had. And before I have ever, ever arrived at a place of faithfulness and trusting Jesus, I've had to go through grief. And I think the same thing is true for you as well. There have been things that have been taken away from you. And God does not want to rush you to a place of vain platitudes. God wants you to first experience that. And with other people, inviting other people in, maybe counselors and therapists, depending on how heavy the situation is, to grieve those losses, to not pretend like it's all good, but to face those things. The third thing is to look to Jesus. One of the things that is the most profound about Christianity is that is the doctrine of incarnation. The doctrine of incarnation is this, that God himself entered into humanity in the person of Jesus. Jesus was not God's prophet. He was God in the flesh, which means that when Jesus experienced things in life, when you pray, you know that God himself, the one you pray to, has also experienced those things. There's a scripture when Jesus is on the cross and he prays, my Lord, my Lord, why have you forsaken me? Think about this. The God of eternity enters into humanity in the person of Jesus, and God knows what it feels like to feel forsaken by God. If you have ever felt forsaken, forsaken is a strong word. Forsaken doesn't mean forgotten. Forgotten is like, oh, my bad, I just didn't remember it. Forsaken is I remembered it, and I intentionally turned my head away from you. God knows what it feels like to be forsaken by God. So if you ever feel that in your own life, that because of the pain in my life, the things that I have done, that I feel forsaken by God, then God knows what that feels like. So you can look to Jesus, the author and the finisher of your faith, who for the joy set before him endured the, the, the cross with patience and endured the scorn and the shame. Some of you, your only prayers will not be these big prayers for God to do anything bold in your life, because maybe you're not at that point. For many of you, the only prayer that you will have to say with integrity is, God, I know you understand my pain. And that prayer is, is enough. And in looking to Jesus, you will find real strength. Because first and foremost, you won't feel alone. And there's nothing worse than feeling alone, like you are isolated, like nobody understands what's going on in your life. And if you find yourself in a position that something in your life, a thorn in your flesh, that it will not be taken away from you, you need to look to Jesus. So number one, plead with the Lord for him to take it away. Two, grieve your losses. Three, look to Jesus. And the fourth one, eventually, after you have done these other things, you can find strength in God's grace. Jesus tells Paul something that is profound and something that, as I say these words, every bit of my flesh resists wanting this to be true. He says, my power is made perfect in weakness. God's power reaches its full potential in your weakness. God's grace is something that God wants to do in our life. And for many of us, you and I, I think, first and foremost, should be challenged to be thinking about ourselves as potential dispensers of God's grace to those who are in need. But for those of us who are in need of God's grace and God's strength. I think we're only going to get it if we turn to Jesus and, and trust that if we move away from all self-reliance and in faith, even though we can't see the whole staircase, in faith, if we take the next step in faith towards Jesus, 
He will meet us there. With your sins, if you turn your faith and your sins to Jesus, he'll remind you that there is no condemnation to those who are in me. If God is for you, who can be against you? Who can make any charge against God's elect? What can separate you from the love of Christ? And God invites us to come to him. And in coming to him, we will find real strength. Jesus wants you to know that he is merciful with your weaknesses. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Jesus knows your weaknesses, that they keep you from doing the things that you want to do. And Jesus doesn't despise you for that. He wants to help you. He understands. Jesus wants to heal you of your wounds. The question that Jesus asked a paralytic one time was a profound question. He says, do you want to be healed or have you grown accustomed to your wounds? Will you do the thing that healing requires? Will you make a bold move that you haven't done for years, sometimes for decades? And Jesus is compassionate with our damages, telling us that his power is made perfect in our weaknesses. Here's the truth about Jesus. He's not looking for strong people. People will be impressed by your strengths, but they will be helped by your weaknesses. They will be really, really impressed by your strengths, but they will be helped by the weaknesses that you have turned over to the master and that you have come out on the other side, not strong in your own right, but strong in him. Jesus wants to make something beautiful out of your life if you'll let him, if you're dependent on him. But the truth remains that God wants to do something through the brokenness in our life. There's a scripture in 2 Corinthians 4 where it says that, and we have this treasure. Paul is talking about the Holy Spirit that lives inside of every single person who has placed their faith in Christ. And he says, we have this treasure, the Holy Spirit that lives inside of us in jars of clay. And here's the thing about the treasure that is in the jar of clay. You will only see the beauty of the treasure if the clay gets broken. Otherwise, the clay, the pottery, will simply just block away what is inside of it. But that clay, when it is broken, you will start to see the rays of God's goodness and God's glory come through. There's very few people in my life who I've been blown away by and truly impacted by, people who are giants of the faith, fathers of the faith, mothers of the faith, people that I would follow into a burning building. And all of these people have something in common. They had sins that they didn't hide and they took it to Jesus. They had weaknesses that they didn't rely on themselves, but they took their weaknesses to Jesus. They had wounds that they didn't just hoard and try to pretend like didn't exist, but they let them be seen for God to heal them. And they had damages that made them not rely on themselves, but on God. And that made God's glory shine through their lives. We want God to use us based on our strengths, based on our abilities. But what if the way God wants to use you in your life is based off of your sins, your testimony of what it took like for God to, to heal you from the things in your life that you couldn't get through on your own, the weaknesses in your life, how you've learned patience through this process, the wounds in your life so you can identify with other people, and the damages in your life that, that allow you to rely on Jesus in a way that is unthinkable to others. This is the beauty of what it means like to turn over all of the problems that we have with us and to turn them over to God. Now, I would be very remiss if we ended today without talking about not just how I want you to see yourself, but how I want you to treat other people. There are so many people 
who before you have ever said a word to them, they have beat themselves up 900 times. And they don't need more judgment. They don't need more judgment. They need a place to belong. They need someone who listens to them. With their weaknesses, they don't need you to, to be annoyed with them. They need you to help them in their weaknesses. With their wounds, they need you to be gentle with them. And with their damages, they need you to walk alongside them, not for a short period, but for the long term. So as you consider what it looks like to, to walk with your own or someone else's sins, weaknesses, wounds, and damages, may we be people of grace who receive God's grace, God's grace which is made perfect in our weaknesses. So Heavenly Father, uh, I pray for this beautiful community of people. Lord, as we wrestle with what it means to be broken, to be in need, Lord, I pray that it would push us to you and in you we would find a real source of strength and hope and healing and power. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.